Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 374 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17. To the moon. This is Apollo Control at uh, one hour fifty-one minutes. You know, we're getting good telemetry data uh, from Apollo 17 through one of the Apollo range instrumented aircraft uh, out over the Atlantic Ocean. Apollo 17 uh, moving across the Atlantic now towards uh, Africa, and on the next revolution, uh, at about this point, uh, the spacecraft will be uh, on its way to the moon doing the translunar injection maneuver. Ignition for that burn is scheduled to occur uh, one hour, 21 minutes from now. During launch, the uh, flight surgeon monitoring heart rates on the three crewmen uh, recorded peak heart rates uh, of 130 for the commander, Gene Cernan, uh, also 130 uh, for command module pilot, Ron Evans, and 115 for uh, Lunar Module Pilot Jack Schmidt. During the first three hours of the flight, the crew spent their time on one, checking out the equipment in preparation for the translunar injection burn, two, experiencing zero gravity, and three, looking out the windows. Jack Schmidt especially enjoyed looking out the windows He happily spent the time giving ground controllers a running account of almost every cloud passing below, amazed by the difference between textbook theory and real life. If Jack could get so excited about seeing a rainbow, what would he be like on the moon? Here is how Ron Evans described it. So now we're going to check out our spacecraft. We're only going to go around the Earth twice. And then we're going to head on out to the moon. But while we're in that three hours going around the Earth, and one of the first things we want to do is um, kind of get rid of some of the gloves and the helmet. and can't re- We don't have time to take off the spacesuits, but you get ready to do that. And the first thing you check now is the pressure inside the spacecraft. You want to make sure that it's stopped at five pounds per square inch and held pressure in there. So you check the gauges out pretty good. And then it looks all right. So then your gloves are locked onto your suit now with a kind of a lock ring. So you squeeze the lock rings, pop your wrist open a little bit, and then you start breathing. <sighs> yeah, still breathe. It's okay. Yeah. So, you, so you take off your glove, you know, and set it out in front of you. 
and it just kind of floats around out there, you know. And then you reach over and undo the other lock ring, pop it, take that glove off, set it out here, and it just floats around next to the other one. And then you want to get rid of this big old bubble helmet that's on top of your head. And again, it has lock rings on it. So you squeeze the lock rings, undo your helmet, turn it upside down, reach over and grab your glove, stick it in the helmet, reach over and grab the other glove, stick it in the helmet, you know, and then give it a little bit of shove, it goes over in the corner, clink, 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 kind of bounces around the corner. And then comes your first real test of zero-G. See, up until this time, we've been strapped into the, the spacecraft, so we're just, you know, riding along there, and we don't even know what it really feels like. So now comes a chance. You reach down, you undo your lap belt. And you know when, it, when you do that on an airplane here on the Earth, your lap belt goes thunk, you know, and it flops down to the floor? Not so in zero-G. You know, the lap belt floats up in the air, the buckle, you know, goes floats right up in the air, and you float right off the seat with it, you know? And, and then you kind of arch your back a little bit and go down in the lower equipment bay, check out all of the equipment, and, and, and uh, really get your first chance to you know, just do this floating around up there. And it's absolutely delightful. But yeah. About three hours after launch, Apollo 17 had completed two orbits of the planet, and it was almost time for the translunar injection burn, which would set them on a course to the moon. And we're coming up now on two minutes until ignition. This burn again will be a five minute, 51 second uh, maneuver. The uh, S-4B engine uh, delivering about 225,000 pounds of thrust and it'll be increasing the spacecraft velocity from the current uh, uh, speed of about 25,000 feet per second up to around 35,585 feet per second. Roger, we confirm it. And booster reports the uh, ullage engines are on. This is to settle the propellants in the uh, S-4B prior to ignition. Uh, we're 53 seconds now from ignition. 17, uh, you're looking great on a final status check here, and you're go for TLI. 20 seconds now to ignition, and uh, we're maintaining communications with the spacecraft through one of the Araya Apollo range instrumented aircraft. Roger. 10 seconds. Online time, we have And very faintly, we copy the crew reporting S-4B ignition. That's confirmed uh, by the telemetry. And booster reports the thrust looks good on the S-4B. 17 Houston, you're looking good, and the thrust is go. Bob, you're done in but we're go on board at 20 seconds. Roger. And telemetry data from the Saturn instrument unit shows the velocity increasing, uh, up now to 26,000 feet per second, beginning to climb ever more rapidly. This burn was initiated at an altitude of about 97 nautical miles above Earth. Uh, when finished, the spacecraft will be at about 150 miles above Earth and on its way to the moon, some 213,000 nautical miles away. 17, Houston, we can confirm PU shift and you are go. And that was Capcom Robert Overmeyer confirming to the crew that our data showed the uh, Saturn uh, shifting its uh, propellant utilization for uh, most efficient utilization of the propellants. Then 2.30 uh, in the vine, we're still go. Roger, 17, you're go, looking great. Okay, Bob, got that. To understand we're go from the ground, and uh, it's a good ride, although it's rumbling around a little bit. Okay. Coming up now, three minutes into the burn. And the velocity approaching 30,000 feet per second. Bob, we're going to TLI right through sunrise. Right to understand. 
Jane Cernan reporting the uh, TLI burn has taken them out of darkness and into sunrise now. Apollo 17 now about 107 nautical miles above Earth and continuing to climb ever more rapidly. Four minutes, 30 seconds now and everything continuing to look good. Apollo 17 at a velocity of 32,000 feet per second. Roger, how do you read me? You are go, by the way. Five minutes now, less than one minute to go. And booster engineer reports uh, we're very close to the nominal uh, predicted shutdown time. 17 Houston, your burn time is nominal. I understand burn time nominal. Shut down now in about 21 seconds. We're showing a velocity of 33,000 feet per second. Altitude now approaching 150 miles. We don't have the disky. Uh, you have to read it to us, uh, Ron. Roger, we copy that. And it was an auto cutoff, auto cutoff on time. Understand, a guided cutoff on time, looking great. And I'm watching the tank pressures are venting, the tanks are venting. Understand, tanks are venting. And we're still getting communications through the Apollo range instrumented aircraft. We'll be uh, uh, picking up through Ascension shortly at which time we'd expect the communications to improve, the noise to drop off. Uh, Gene Cernan's uh, report, also from the reports from uh, Ron Evans, it appeared that that uh, translunar injection was extremely close to nominal. Uh, the crew read a cutoff time of 5 minutes 52 seconds. The uh, pre-maneuver prediction was 5 minutes 51 seconds. And the cutoff velocity appeared to be very, very close to the uh, planned normal. After Houston signaled a go to reignite the third stage S-4B engine, the astronauts were gently pressed against their seats as the thrust began. This burn was intended to last a little longer than previous Apollo flights to make up for the time loss during the delay on the launch pad. When the burn was complete, Apollo 17 was out of Earth orbit and on its way to the moon. Here's how Ron Evans described translunar injection, or TLI. Our job now, as I mentioned, is not to go around the Earth. Our job is to go on out to the moon. So we figure out, and we're going to increase our speed, see, and, and, and light the engine and, and leave the Earth. But you figure out not where the moon is now, but where the moon is going to be out there in space three days later. So you light the engine off, and then... Uh, as you're sitting in the seat, just kind of floating in the seat, the engine ignites, and the spacecraft comes up, boom, you know, hits you in the behind, and, and, and then you start accelerating, you go faster and faster and faster and faster, and, and, and then it goes burns for six minutes and 22 seconds, shuts down, then you want to know how fast you're leaving. So you, again, you, hey computer, how fast are we going? The computer reads back, you are traveling 25,000 miles an hour away from the Earth. Computer didn't say that I did. I mean, we're leaving the Earth, <laughs> man. I'm, and we're leaving the Earth. So then, you really have to ask yourself, though, how fast is 25,000 miles an hour? You know, the only way that you can tell how fast you're going 
is with respect to another body or another object. The only object we had up there was the Earth. See? So you look out the window now and you're 100 miles above the Earth, and you can kind of see a slight curvature of it, and you can say, well, maybe it's round, but you really can't tell. But when you're leaving that Earth at 25,000 miles an hour, within just 20 minutes, that relatively flat Earth transitions down to a little ball that you can see out through an 8-inch window. Man, oh man, what a sight that is. The next critical maneuvers would be performed mostly by Command Module Pilot Ron Evans. The maneuvers were called transposition, docking, and extraction. The maneuvers begin with the separation of the Command and Service Module from the rest of the stack and the revealing of the Lunar Module on top of the S-4B as the four panels that make up the Spacecraft Lunar Module Adapter abbreviated SLA and pronounced SLAW, come off. A set of pyrotechnic devices are used to sever electrical connections between the service module and the S-4B. Long lengths of explosive cut the metal structure, joining the service module to the SLAW to allow the spacecraft to come free. They cut the upper 75% of the conical spacecraft lunar module adapter into four long sections which are now only joined to the S-4B by spring-loaded partial hinges at the center of their lower edge. Pyrotechnic thrusters mounted within the intact portion of the slaw force pistons to push on the outside edge of each slaw panel, causing them to begin rotating away from the enclosed lunar module. Once the panels have rotated about 45 degrees from the center line of the launch vehicle, the hinges disengage, allowing springs within the hinge assembly to push the panels away at about 2.5 meters per second leaving the lunar module exposed at the top of the Saturn's third stage. Ron would then dock with the lunar module and separate it from the third stage. The S-4B, no longer of any use, would then be maneuvered away by mission control. The big engine fired for a final time, and the rocket hurtled toward the moon where it would crash like a meteor just before the crew arrived. Here is the clip for separation, transposition, docking, and extraction. I edited this down for time. Okay, switches are all set. Okay, let's start the DET. Tickety tick tickety Houston, we're running at 5930. Roger. Okay. Okay, that's the launch vehicle set. Push button. Separation, Houston. Hey, check the... Uh, there it is. Okay. And check the other one's off. Okay, I'm going to start the... I got look at the junk. Okay, there's 15 seconds. Picture up. Okay, we'll proceed on the... Uh... Okay, we've already proceeded. Houston, we're right in the middle of a snowstorm. <laughs> Roger, and we might come to Delta. Hey, look at that bird. That's going to be bright as all get up. And here goes one of the slop panels. Apollo 17 now in the process of um, 
turning around uh, after having separated, blown the pyrotechnic charges that separates the uh, spacecraft from the Saturn third stage. Roger, bet you never saw the slaw panels on the simulator. No, but we've got the booster and his sheep, pretty challengers just sitting in her nest. And uh, Houston, some of the uh, particles going by the window uh, are obviously, uh, fairly obviously to be paint. Okay, we'll buy that. Okay, it's flying pretty good. Okay, we're in the reactor. I'm guessing, I don't know, about 100 That's feet, maybe. Good seemed to smooth, uh, slew very smoothly, so uh, looks all right. I can't tell you too much, Bob, from the center seat other than uh, Captain America is very intent on getting Challenger at the moment. Well, Roger, I can believe that. Yeah, I'm coming in a little slow, but uh, got plenty of time. Ron Evans now at the Controls of America, uh, moving in for the docking with uh, Lunar Module Challenger. And, uh, Moving in here, I can see a few uh, chunks of that uh, plating material, uh, possibly paint, down in the slaw, sort of bouncing around between the uh, S4B and the uh, limb. But so far, uh, limb looks very clean. Uh, can't see anything uh, abnormal from this view yet. Uh, she's coming in. And Apollo 17, uh, in the process of uh, docking with the lunar module, uh, preparatory to extracting the uh, LEM uh, from the Saturn third stage. Uh, this occurring at some 5,300 nautical miles from Earth. And we're watching the spacecraft velocity uh, drop off rapidly as that altitude increases rapidly. Uh, the velocity which at uh, the uh, translunar injection cutoff was around uh, 35,000 feet per second, down now to about 22,000. Okay, about 10 feet there, Gene. Stand by for uh, a point of our ball. Capture, Houston. Roger, we copy. Okay, we're free. Uh, rates look pretty good. Let's suck it together. Ready. She's uh, lined up, not bad. Okay. Uh, prime one. Market, stand by. There she comes. Good job. Hi, guys. Okay, Houston, ripple fire, but we still have uh, number A barber pole. Right, do we copy? We have a master. Got a master alarm. We're ready. We got, uh, we got the most of the uh, latches, but uh, A is barber pole and uh, B is gray. Okay, check both circuit breakers. Okay. We had. Uh, one clear uh, fire, uh, maybe a one or two uh, latches, and then a ripple fire of the rest. Ron uh, and Gene, we saw your master alarm. Did you have any uh, anything on the matrix of light up? No, not a thing. I looked. Roger. That would appear to be a repeat of the uh, uh, master alarm uh, that has been reported several times previously by the crew. Uh, they get the alarm light and tone, but uh, when they look for the uh, exact indication or the precise indication of what's wrong, it's not there, uh, indicating some sort of a uh, uh, spurious response by the uh, master alarm to uh, a problem that doesn't exist. Okay, Bob, we're going to go ahead and take a look at that uh, docking malfunction before we press on to further and check this uh, barber pole out. Roger, we're working some words up here. Uh, we'll be back within a second on the chain.
Okay, we're down at a checklist uh, through the power breakers uh, open. It turned out that there was a problem with three of the docking latches that did not lock into position. The crew was able to open the hatch, remove the probe, and engage latch 7, 9, and 10 manually. Okay, Bob, maybe uh, we aren't all going to be so happy. Go ahead. Uh, 7, okay, 7, 9, and 10. Uh, the handle is flush. Uh, the bungee is vertical. But uh, the handle is not locked down, and the, uh, and the red button uh, is showing. And I can uh, pull each one of them back slowly. I haven't done anything with them. That's 7, 9, and 10. Roger, we copy that. The handle is flush, the bungees are vertical, but the handle is not locked down, and the red button is showing on 7, 9, or and 10. That's perfect. Bob, I just pushed the handle on 10 uh, home a little bit, and it did lock, and uh, the red button is flush. So that leaves me 9 and 7. Uh, Jano, uh, go ahead and try the handle on uh, 9 and 7, and if that doesn't work, cock them and refire them, starting with 9, please. Okay, the handle uh, doesn't work. I'll have to recock them. Okay. Okay, nine cocked twice and tripped and is over center and locked. Roger, how about the barber pole now? Okay, wait a minute, I got Second probe main A circuit breakers in and going to retract and it's gray. Okay. Ah, I did it. Roger. This is Apollo Control at four hours thirty minutes. About nine minutes from now the uh, crew will be uh, firing the pyrotechnic charges that separate the lunar module dock to the command module from the Saturn third stage. And uh, springs will uh, push the LEM CSM uh, back away from the launch vehicle at a rate of about one foot per second. Then uh, at uh, ground elapsed time of four hours, 52 minutes, the uh, launch vehicle will yaw to the proper attitude for uh, an evasive maneuver of about 10 feet per second to be performed at a ground elapsed time of about five hours, three minutes. Uh, this will increase the separation distance to assure uh, no chance of recontact between the booster and the spacecraft en route to the moon. Okay, on my mark, that's 4B, limp step. Three, two, one, mark it. Okay, we got it. Oh, man, did we? There she comes. Yeah, left came with us. Okay, where's the MC Auto? I don't know. I've got uh, six tenths, all right. Okay, what can you do? This is Apollo Control. Uh, America and Challenger are on their own. Uh, lab ejection occurred at four hours, 45 minutes, ground elapsed time at an altitude of 13,000 nautical miles from Earth. Here's how Ron Evans recalled the maneuver. And I have another little switch in there, and I throw the switch, and that separates some explosive bolts, and then we back out of the top of the rocket, give it a little thrust backwards, and then we just flow it out away, or back out away from the rocket, and then after we get out a little ways, and then we make a mid-course correction so that we're going to go around the side of the moon, and the rocket goes ahead and hits the moon, see? So we're going to make a slight correction, and now we've got a chance to kind of 
relax for the next three days as we get ready to go on out out and explore the moon. As the crew of Apollo 17 began their 86-hour coast to the moon, they could finally relax a bit. Of course, Jack Smith stayed at his window, chattering about the marvelous things he was seeing below. Hey, there's Antarctica. It's all full of snow. Antarctica is full of snow, he told a nearly empty mission control room at 4.49 in the morning, Houston time. And I've never taken it so easy in my life. i tell you, Bob, uh, I couldn't have believed this would be an experience like it is now. Roger. Yeah, every time you turn around, there's something else to see and wonder what's causing it, whether it's a particle zipping across the window or uh, one zipping across the cabin or uh, spring mechanics here in the <laughs> zero-G. There's always something going on. Roger. Since he wouldn't be able to see the moon for a couple days, Jack had planned with some of his colleagues to examine the weather patterns of Earth as never before from Australia to Zanzibar. For the next two days, he would do a running account of Earth's weather patterns as the world spun like a blue top, growing steadily smaller. One Capcom called Smith a human weather satellite, but they still encouraged him to talk on and on. After all, He was the first scientist to enter what had always been a test pilot's domain. The crew wrestled their way out of their bulky spacesuits, which had the effect of adding three more people to the already cramped cabin, before they could get them pressed flat, stowed, and out of the way. Cernan, in a good mood, glanced out of the window and reported, quote, Houston, I know we're not the first to observe this, but Apollo 17 would like to confirm the Earth is round." The mechanics of the mission were going surprisingly well, with only the master alarm light requiring attention by the crew. But they ran the numbers just to verify everything worked. Then they dug into their meal packs, and while Gene had a half a sandwich and some water, Ron tried potato soup, which oozed out of the plastic bag and hung in the air like globs of glue that he guided into his mouth. Here's Evans describing eating in microgravity. You know, something else now uh, that's a little bit different up there is eating in space. Uh, As you all, I'm sure, recall and know, The food is packaged in kind of a little plastic bag, and it's all a freeze-dried type of food. So somehow you have to get water inside that bag to mix with the food. So NASA designed a little uh, kind of a nipple on the one corner of the bag. And then they space qualify it, so they encase it in a kind of a triangular piece of plastic. So in order to get in there, the first thing you've got to do, you want to undo that plastic and then take your water gun and put it in there. So you reach in your back pocket, you get your scissors, and you... You cut around that little nipple. And the first time I did that, what happened was I had a little triangular piece of plastic. Mm, and it was floating all over, you know, creating junk all over the spacecraft. So after what, very quickly, you learn you, you just cut it around partway around and kind of let it hang there, see? Like that. And then every, all the junk's all hooked up together. So then you reach up and you get your water gun 
Take your water gun, stick it in this little nipple. Give it three squirts of water, or four, or whatever to say. It says right on the side of the bag how many you're supposed to get. <laughs> but you still end up with three round spears of water in one end of the bag, and the food is still in the other end of the bag. See? So what you've got to do is take the bag and you smush it around, you know, you shake it, you know, shake it up, and it turns to potato soup or tomato soup or doesn't make a difference what it started out to be. It all ends up soup, you know. Uh, <laughs> but it's still inside the bag. So then you've got to kind of hold the bag sideways, reach in your back pocket again, get your scissors out, and you, you cut open the top of the bag. And then you've got a bowl of soup sitting there. And you get in your back pocket again, get your spoon, just a plain old uh, soup spoon, very carefully dip it down into your bowl of soup, get a little bit of soup on the spoon, and then reach up and take a bite that way. After a while, I said, hey, wait a minute. I'm in zero gravity now. And there isn't any up, and there isn't any down either, see? So it's the greatest delight. While you're having your soup, you can turn your bowl upside down. <laughs> it won't come out. Stick your spoon in the bottom of it, you know? And just kind of float it around, get a little bit of soup on your spoon, you know? And just float around, take a bite that way. <laughs> a lot of fun. It takes a long time to eat up there, but it's a lot of fun, too. <laughs> The crew's first rest period began almost exactly nine hours into the mission. Although they had been awake for about 22 hours straight, they were too excited to do much more than sleep fitfully. Here's Evans on sleeping. Now, there's a lot of differences now between what it's like up there in space and what it's like down here on the Earth. And one of the biggest differences, uh, we left it off in the middle of the night, and so we had a relatively short day, and it came time to get ready to go to bed again. And as soon as you get ready to sleep up there in zero-G, you kind of look around, you know, and, and uh, you think to yourself, now, let's see, do I float on my right side? Do I float on my left side? Do I float on my back? I think what it really amounts to is, where's my huggy pillow, you know? <laughs> While you're up there. Now, as a kind of a crutch, uh, we had some vertical supports inside there, so you'd wrap your arm around one of those vertical supports, clamp your fingers together, and just lean your head up against the uh, couch front, you know, and just kind of go to sleep that way. But after a while, I said, hey, wait a minute. I'm really up here as an astronaut. Let's really do it. So all you have to do when you get ready to go to sleep, you just kind of fold your arms a little bit. Your knees will bend naturally. Close your eyes and go to sleep. However, now, just like down here on the Earth, same thing up in zero-G. You kind of toss and turn while you're sleeping up there, see? And every time, you don't wake up, but every time you toss and turn, you bump into something. And you'll bounce off in one direction or another crazy direction. You know, in the, warm, in the morning when you wake up now, your feet will be up in the tunnel maybe, or your head will be back down underneath the couches, or perish the thought you might even be smuggled up next to those other guys you're flying with. <laughs> now, back in Florida, Barbara Cernan had stayed awake after the midnight launch until Apollo 17 had left orbit and was safely on the way to the moon. Then she caught a few hours of sleep before getting up about dawn to pack. She, Tracy, and Jan Evans and her kids, Jamie and John, left aboard a NASA Gulfstream Thursday morning out of Patrick Air Force Base to return to Houston. Barbara's immediate plans, she told reporters before departing, quote, I'm going to take the phone off the hook take a bath, and go to bed. 
The astronauts awoke from their rest period somewhere over the Pacific and found the Earth had grown smaller very quickly. The entire coastlines of North and South America could be seen beneath them. After they had a breakfast of sausage patties, grits, and cocoa, weatherman Jack Smith was immediately back at his window. Southern California was in good shape, but a nasty storm system was reaching into the northwestern U.S. Jack finally realized that he was looking at more than just cloud formations and continents, and there was a momentary crack in his scientific demeanor. And he said, quote, When we moved away from the earth, how fragile a piece of blue it looked to be. And that impression certainly grows the farther you get from it. End quote. The first planned course correction was canceled because of the extraordinary accuracy of their flight path, and except for a brewing sense of anticipation, things actually got boring for the astronauts. Despite conducting a long series of experiments, the biggest moment came when Ron lost his blunt-nosed surgical scissors. Capcom Gordon Fullerton teased him by saying, Scissors, scissors, who's got the scissors? The big eater, Ron, was frustrated and he urgently searched the cabin since the scissors were the only way into the sealed bags of food. Back in Houston at the Cernan home, a plywood cutout of Santa Claus had been staked on the lawn. Neighbors had arranged red, white, and blue Christmas lights to resemble an American flag, and a bag of mail awaited Jean's daughter, Tracy. But another herd of reporters was also waiting when Barbara and Tracy arrived home. And Barbara told them, quote, For us, when we came into the program, Gene's goal was to reach the moon. He's now reaching that goal. This is our challenge, and we've met it. I'm very proud, end quote. Her familiar mask of optimism was holding firm. It would be many years before she would lower her guard and write a friend, quote, I've been asked many times how I felt when he was off on a space trip, and if I told you I wasn't scared to death each time, I would not be telling the truth. End quote. The strain this time would be more than anything she had ever endured because of the length of the mission, its complexity, and its importance. Barbara would soon feel besieged in her own home. On the private radio loop, Gene asked Deke Slayton a coded question to be sure the security guards were on alert around his house back in Nassau Bay. Don't worry, Gino, Slayton replied. Everything is fine on that front. Then Gene was told that Tracy was listening, and Gene reminded his daughter from a hundred thousand miles away not to forget to feed the horses. The next day, the crew awoke after almost eight hours of sleep. It was late on Friday, December 8th, on Earth clocks, and the crew were all still tired, primarily because of the enforced idleness of the cramped spaceship, which they had little to do other than 
putter with a seemingly endless line of experiments and listened to the Dr. Rock Weather Channel. They did conduct a two-second mid-course correction, which tacked an extra seven miles per hour onto their speed. Then Jack and Gene went through the narrow connecting tunnel and spent almost two and a half hours inside the lunar module inspecting all the equipment of Challenger and preparing the systems for their upcoming three-day stay on the lunar surface. But hours passed slowly as they traveled through the empty halls of outer space. They had a lot of time to kill and grew tired of doing nothing at all that might be considered exciting. Their velocity had steadily bled away as Earth tried to pull Apollo 17 back. And now they were only traveling 3,000 miles per hour. A virtual standstill in space speed as they settled in for another rest period. Capcom warned that they might feel a bounce during the night because they were about to rumble across the imaginary speed bump when they would leave the Earth's sphere of gravity. Soon the moon would grab the spacecraft and draw it forward. The need for sleep must have caught up with the crew because it took 10 tries by mission control to awaken them. Mission Control repeatedly tripped warning tones on the instrument console, received no response, then played three loud renditions of I'm a J.J.J. Hulk, the fight song of Ron's alma mater, the University of Kansas. Still, no effect. Gene finally noticed a blinking light on the control panel and snapped, Hey, we're asleep. That's the understatement of the year, said Gordon Fullerton, again on Capcom duty. The crew had overslept by an hour. Ron was supposed to be on watch, but claimed he fell asleep after a big party. Gene explained that actually Ron had inadvertently kicked on an audio connection and disconnected his communications in settling down to rest. It was no big deal, but gave the crew something to talk about other than the missing scissors, and in fact, was the most interesting thing of the day. Finally, it was Saturday, December 9th, and Apollo 17 was in the moon's firm grip, only about 38,000 miles out and drawing closer by the moment. Jack and Gene moved back into the Challenger to give the lunar module a final checkout and found the spider was ready. Gene looked out of its triangular windows, but still could not see the moon because of the angle at which they were approaching, sailing easily through an ocean of bright sunlight. Gene had experienced this sensation before on Apollo 10 and felt comfortable in familiar territory, but he also had a few disconcerting thoughts because he knew what lay ahead. They were close. Although unseen, the moon would now be very large, lurking nearby like a grizzly bear pawing at the outside of a log cabin door. Then the sun disappeared and Apollo 17 was enveloped by moon shadow. As the light blinked out, their spacecraft began to seem fragile and vulnerable and Gene remembered that the gold outer skin of Challenger 
had a thickness of only two thousandths of an inch, not much more than the edge of a piece of paper. For about an hour, things got very quiet as they plunged through obsidian blackness. Then suddenly, at three days, twelve hours, six minutes, and thirty-one seconds into the flight of Apollo 17, they crossed out of shadow and burst back into brilliant sunlight. And there it was, still some ten thousand miles away, but encompassing their universe. And Jean let out a shout. Boy, it's big! We're coming right down on top of it. The sun was low on the horizon and blazed right in their eyes, and the moon blotted out everything else. It was gigantic, a world of its own. Such scenes existed only in science fiction, for not even the simulators could impart the reality of such a moment. They plummeted toward it faster and faster, and the closer they got, the bigger it grew. There was a faint feeling of vertigo as if they were falling down a shaft toward the surface and might soon pancake right into some crater. Dr. Rock was stunned by the sheer size of the planetoid that he had spent a lifetime studying. Never in his wildest dreams had Jack imagined such a sight and he momentarily lost his ability to even speak. The sun illuminated the high peaks and the mountains and the rims of giant craters and surface details emerged, bathed in gold or hidden in deep shadow. By now they were only 2,600 miles up and coming in fast, trying to thread an orbital needle by hitting an invisible bullseye only 60 miles above the lunar surface. While Jack sat mute, transfixed, and Jean also gazed in wonder at the unfolding details of this distinct celestial body, Ron was less rapt. He alternated staring at the moon with poking around the spacecraft interior. I'll have a hard time eating if you guys take all the scissors with you, he said. Ron had his priorities straight. Food was far more important than sightseeing. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 374 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 17, Trip to the Moon. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. First, a very important announcement. Thanks to my former web host, GoDaddy. I had to change my email address. Please update your records. If you need to contact me, use the email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Our next episode will be posted in a couple of weeks, hopefully by October 28th. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 198 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. 
Today, we celebrate our Shooting Star Emoji donors. These donors have supported the podcast for five consecutive years and receive a Shooting Star Emoji next to their name on the donor's page. Okay, I had some afterthoughts on this episode. Well, I guess you can just manually flip those docking latches if enough don't get closed automatically. Now, I wonder, how many had to fire before an astronaut could safely climb into the tunnel and close a few of those latches? I guess you just have to have enough to seal the tunnel. So apparently, three failures is okay. Maybe four. I don't know. It seemed a little dangerous, but I guess it was okay. You know, the astronauts also had a problem with panel number two in the command module uh, where the master alarm would come on for no reason. But they worked that one out, so that may have been the most trouble-free trip to the moon that we have had. Cernan was getting really bored, as you might have could tell. He had little interest in the science experiments, and there were no major problems to troubleshoot. Now, for me, it's hard to believe someone could get bored traveling to the moon. But I guess it was Gene's second trip, and nothing was going on, so he did get bored. I think Dr. Rock quite enjoyed giving the weather report from his perspective as a scientist, and Ron Evans was responsible for flying the command module, so he had a little bit more to do. You know, I really enjoy playing Ron's clips of space travel. It sounds like he would have been a fun traveling companion. So since there wasn't much going on during the trip out, I chose to spend a little more time and give a few more details on translunar injection and transposition. Hopefully there was some new stuff in there you haven't heard. You know, each time I try to I do a mission, I try to completely cover it so a listener could actually start listening to the podcast on Apollo 17 and still understand what all goes on for a moon mission. So by nature, there is some repetitiveness there. But I try to make it a little different each time. I also try to include, on this episode, I try to include some of the family stuff that I don't always put in. So I hope you enjoyed Mankind's final trip to the moon. But next week, we will land on the moon for the last time. For those interested in the uh, farmhouse progress, there has been some, and we got the uh, rocks for the basement put in, and then the vapor barrier over that, and on Monday, the concrete slab was finally poured. We have a concrete slab in the basement now. It's not mud anymore. We are now about four and a half months into the construction and we are finally ready to have some carpentry started. But the 2x10s and the OSB have not been delivered yet. Now, my contractor said they would start the wood construction this week, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Anyway, that is the update for this fortnight.
Over the last fortnight, we had five contributions, and I would like to thank Bob F. from Massachusetts, who donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. James J., who donated at the Apollo level. William R. from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, who donated at the Apollo level. Ross M. from Michigan, who donated at the Mercury level. And Stephen S. from Washington, who donated at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors have declined to 245. That's when we do that right at the change of a month, we usually lose some uh, Patreon members just because their credit card expired. So if you're about to expire on Patreon, I'd appreciate if you check that. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 391, and our goal is to reach 500 by the end of the year. I was pleased to see we did reach the average financial contribution amount for September. So thank you very much for your support. And if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello friends, the winner of the SRH drawing will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet or the SRH Archive Magnet or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or a NASA Meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Stefan Fink. Stefan Fink, if you would email us Space Rocket History at gmail.com to tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 391 of you who contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kratz, The Apollo 17 in Real Time, The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, Apollo 17 Flight Journal, The Internet Archive, Flickr, Ron Evans, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 375 posted by October 28th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.